Richard, yes, maybe this is a really silly question, but how busy are you at the moment? I would consider myself to be very hard-pressed for time, partly because we've got a book out at the moment, so I've been on book talk, I've also been to places doing that, partly because we have the great pleasure of meeting and doing our rabbit hole detectives, partly also because I've got box blight, and the box hedges in my garden have died, and so Ben and the garden, the garden my gardener guy, he's doing all the work. So there's a lot happening, plus I'm writing book three in the series, so I consider myself to be quite busy. How about you, Charles? Well, I've kept box blight at bay, <laughs> but I have just finished writing a, a book that's taken me four or five years, and I'm doing this. You know, all of us have a, a you know how much there is after you've finished a book, and also the podcast and all sorts of things back at home. So, would it be fair to say that if somebody found a way to deliver all the day's news to you in a single five-minute source-curated read from the best of the world's media, would that be helpful? Do you mean? A curated source in an easily digestible form of all the headline-making news in the world. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to go out and find it yourself, but you could just get it to you. Would that be useful? I'd love it. If possible. Yes. Well, luckily, somebody's actually found a way of doing just uh-huh. that. Do and it's tell. called The Knowledge. And The Knowledge is a free daily newsletter, and it makes the news manageable. Fill me up with knowledge. Where <laughs> so, would you find it? So you just have to sign up. It's very easy. Excellent. www.theknowledge.com forward slash rabbit hole. Well, that's good to know. Brought to you by John Connell, founder of The Week. And that gives you five minutes daily news. And that's it. The Knowledge makes news manageable. Folding Pocket. Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. And how's everyone today? Raring to go, actually. I think um, Richard's had a very long run of wins, which has now been punctuated by you, Kat. So it shows there are at least three people in the race, which is always nice. (laughs) You've not forgotten your own rather (laughs) impressive total of wins to date. Well, I think we're all pretty level now. Not not that I'm keeping tabs, but I think we are all about seven each or something. Well, you did a little bit Arsenal, Charles, you know, dominating the early part of the season. And then found wanting. Not a big enough squad. (laughs) Outclassed, outplayed. (laughs) Kat, I know what I wanted to ask you. Yes. Where is your doctorate from? My doctorate is from the University of Bristol. Bristol? Yes. Bristol. Well, because I lived very close to my <laughs> no, no. So I did my undergraduate degree there. And I went oh, I to, thought you did your undergraduate degree in Norway. No, undergraduate oh. in Bristol, master's degree in Oslo. What's the title of your PhD thesis? You know what, I can't even remember. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's not, I can't believe that. <laughs> that's just, You're just, just embarrassed by it, because you can't forget that. You can, actually. I've sort of, <laughs> what uh, yeah, was it about? Blacked it out. So it was about the Great Army, and it was about the Vikings, and it was looking at this mass grave, especially using 
I used to have analysis, lots of science. I looked at diet and migration and teeth, strontium, oxygen, so and not, excavations. Not sorry. shields and swords and horned helmets, but bones and bones old and coprolites. Yes, and so bones and teeth and also new excavations and what we found. So it was a bit of, it was actually probably trying to do way too much. Not even a ring. Not even like, I want gold, I want treasure. Yeah, I want the real stuff. Yeah. yeah, no, sadly. Well, no, the real stuff, the real stuff. The people. <laughs> it's the people. Okay, so I was looking at the people. The people. <laughs> That's yeah, the I like the thing. people too, but especially the king and queen people. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, That's very old-fashioned, isn't yeah. it? People yeah. don't want that anymore. But I did have warriors. These were the big, I like bulky the warriors. warriors. Yeah. You would like them. I, you definitely would. So I wouldn't have been great against the Viking army, I don't think. I wouldn't have been would great you? against any army. <laughs> Can you imagine? I've always thought that, you know, living on the east coast of England oh. and you see some sails in the distance, it's very bad news, isn't it? Yeah. You could think, well, oh, it's them again. <laughs> are we going to sit this one out? Are we going <laughs> to stay with the in-laws? <laughs> what are we going to do? Are we going to leave the dog? I don't know. But actually, also, I think you have to remember a lot of them saw it as a bit of a business opportunity because there was a lot of trade there was a lot of business actually because they're actually going to need a lot of stuff oh, any and why army like that they're going to need stuff and they might take it off you but also things get traded they set up these camps for months at a time and they need people feeding them they need people helping them so i yeah, think but a that's lot of the voluntary go, mm. part of it but they also want slaves yeah so you've got to sort of see how can i play this <laughs> so i don't <laughs> become dead or a slave yes but that's a very fine judgment sometimes isn't yeah. it fascinating i think so it's just sort of how so a lot of the people who essentially become traitors and move over to the side is because they're just trying to find a way of fitting mother courage it's always the Vikings. Well, yeah, I mean, they were probably the most important part of history, really. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm biased, but yeah. anyway. You're a Viking. I am. I did my DNA and there's a lot of Viking back there. I've been enslaved, killed, enslaved, killed, enslaved. But I think where you're from, you know, central Northamptonshire, that's a long way from the coast. That's 100 miles from the coast. It's a good place to be. Well, if you want to avoid a Viking marauder, I suppose <laughs> yeah. it's a good place well, to be. Except they did take over Northampton. Though, well, didn't they did come right. In fact, the Danegel was right straight through the county. Yeah, yeah, so but Northampton was taken and captured by the Vikings. Was I just right wonder what my ancestors were doing living in their ditch near what is now Kettering. How far back can you trace your family history? I think we've got back to the 17th century, certainly, but not, I think it's indistinct before then. You're, well, you know about your right? I do. On um, my father's side, goes back quite a long way. So there's an idea that we were originally called Dispenser and came over with the Conqueror. But it's rather like, you know, for the American listeners, it's rather like saying you were on the, your ancestors were on the Mayflower. It's just one of those things you try and get a link back to. So, Richard, you are going to start us off this week. And this is a subject that, that means quite a lot to you, I think. And it's suggested by one of our listeners, Ollie Brown, and it's HIV and AIDS. Yes. I mean, it's been much in my mind lately, partly because in COVID, lots of news items came up, which they said, this is the first pandemic we've had to deal with since Spanish flu in 1918. And I thought, well, actually, it's not, because there's been, well, one very significant one for me since then, in which we are still in, of course, and it is the HIV-AIDS pandemic. 40 million people have died as a consequence of HIV, roughly thereabouts. There are about 40 million people today living with HIV, and about half of those are in Africa. So it is by no means a done story. Where does it begin? It's rather fascinating, actually. 
We think it begins in Central Africa, perhaps, well, some would say what was the Belgian Congo at the time, Leopoldville, Lady Kinshasa, one of the great cities of Africa. Some say in Cameroon, what was happening was there were communities there, of, I think of chimpanzee, and that there was an AIDS-like disease that affected simian popular, SIV, it's known as simian immunodeficiency virus, and it made a jump from the animal kingdom into the human species, and it did so, we think, probably because of bushmeat. People, because of, they were driven to by hunger, were hunting chimpanzee, and the chimpanzee maybe bit them or scratched them or they ate infected tissue, and something happened which made that jump into the human organism. It's an unusual and particularly ghastly thing because what it does, instead of attacking you, it attacks your defences. And so it leaves you open to all kinds of opportunistic infections and you are wiped out by one of those. Around sort of 1920, we think that happened. And then gradually that sort of spread through that population. And then this is very controversial and people argue this all the time. And it's very hard to unwrap it out of a discourse which involves all sorts of issues around colonialism and so forth. But it's thought that one of the reasons why it spread out of there was vaccination. In the post-war period, there was a drive to vaccinate people against sleeping sickness, against all sorts of things, and a very public health inspired thing to do but often needles were used that were not sterilized and so as a consequence blood-borne infections like hiv uh, viruses did transmit into a wider population also kinshasa was a city with a lot of coming and going a lot of trade happening there were people going in and out and they were often traders travelers and they were having what pleasures as they could find as people always have done so there was a huge sex trade and that was taking people uh, people getting infected that way and then gradually in the 50s and the 60s no one really knows about this and there have been some attempts to kind of do a sort of family tree of the transmission of hiv into north america and there have been people who've unfortunately named people i'm not going to name them because i don't think it's the right thing to do who've been described as patient zero have been the person who took that infection into the cities of North America. We think what happened was some people who were working as missionaries, actually in Scandinavia, funnily enough, there's evidence of people who died in the 50s and the 60s. Some tissue samples have been looked at and it's thought that they might have died of HIV, although nobody knew that that's what it was. The first tissue sample we have in which the HIV antibodies have been conclusively traced was a tissue sample from a man who died in 1959. Gosh. So in the 50s and the 60s, also in that sort of post-colonial era, people were moving from Zaire perhaps into Haiti. That was one route of transmission. And then into North America. There's this really interesting phenomenon and it was called junkie pneumonia. In the late 70s in New York, there were clusters of people who were dying of a form of pneumonia who were intravenous drug users. But because they were intravenous drug users, they were so physically vulnerable anyway that nobody really thought to look to see if anything particularly original was happening. But it is now known that they were actually infected through intravenous drug use with HIV. Really only in the very early 80s when it started to appear in clusters in particular communities. It was known for one while as 4-H disease, homosexuals, heroin users, haemophiliacs and Haitians, because they were all people, communities in which these clusters of a form of pneumonia called PCP, pneumocystis carini pneumonia, and then a form of a skin cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma that began to appear. And people were a bit baffled by this because sometimes they were seeing diseases which you normally would be able to knock out with antibiotics in a matter of days that were just sort of rampaging through populations. 
These clusters began to appear in New York and then to appear on the west coast of America, often in communities where there was a high proportion of gay men who were having enormously active sex lives. And sex lives we would now describe as unprotected. But of course, then you didn't know that you needed any protection particularly. You didn't know that there was this potentially fatal disease that you were on the risk of, of getting. So this begins to be identified. It's first, some epidemiologists call it GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And then after a while, AIDS arrives, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. All we knew was that the something was attacking the body's defenses, and as a consequence, people were vulnerable to these rampaging opportunistic infections, cytomegalovirus, Kaposi's sarcoma, tubercular, all these kinds of things which shouldn't be killing people, but which were killing people. And because it affected a community which at that time was a community that was often vulnerable because it was not considered a community that was within the sort of borders of people's concerns or sympathy or engagement or knowledge, it wasn't particularly checked. Medics started to respond to it. Activists started to respond to it. Larry Kramer, playwright in New York, started ACT UP. I remember it began to appear in, in London. The first person, it's not the first person actually who died of AIDS in the UK, but the first name people know is Terence Higgins. In 1982, he collapsed on a dance floor in heaven and he died of AIDS. And the Terence Higgins Trust was formed by his friends. Again, the alert was going out that something was on the horizon that we didn't really understand, but that it was grave and it was threatening. Before you knew it, it kind of swept in and all of a sudden lots of people started to get terribly, terribly ill. Young men in their 20s, and of course, because I was a gay man in my 20s living in London, it affected my world hugely. And it literally was someone would get a cough on a Tuesday and like a heroine in a sort of opera by Verdi would be dead by Friday of some ridiculous disease that sounded almost comic that someone could have died of it were it not so tragic, of course. Activism began to align around these sorts of things and people began to try to get to grips with it, to understand it. There were medics who did amazing jobs. There was a, at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, there was a team led by Luc Montagnier. And then in America, there was a team led by Robert Gallo. Luc Montagnier was later to get the Nobel Prize in medicine for his work, but many think that it should have been shared with Robert Gallo too. But as you can imagine what it was like, the race was on. All of a sudden, people were dying in numbers of these extraordinary, awful diseases. Gay men, intravenous drug users, haemophiliacs who were using untreated blood product, factor eight, as a clotting agent because they didn't have any of themselves. And the sort of race was on trying to get on top of it. And it was really awful, actually, for a while, because everybody was getting it. Everybody was getting terribly ill. Medics were at a loss as how they could deal with it. And lots and lots and lots of people died in my own life. I remember I got a photograph of my photo album, and it was a garden party in about 1983, I think. And I am the only gay man in the picture who's still alive today. Oh. Because we just didn't know. Yes. And gradually we began to understand what was happening. Your sister Diana made an extraordinary intervention, Charles, in mm. April 1987. Mm -hmm. She was Princess of Wales, and she visited the Middlesex Hospital, and she shook hands, ungloved, with a patient who had AIDS. And it was the first time anyone had done that. And it was a hugely significant moment, because until that moment, gay men, and particularly gay men with HIV, were the lepers of our age. Really. Oh, I remember that. I'm, obviously, I remember Diana doing that wonderful and incredibly right thing but before that the english newspapers were calling it gay plague and you know making it an incredibly well they treated it with not just insensitivity but with loathing there was a very telling leader in one of the broadsheets i remember it was a sort of pompous opinion piece actually about 
AIDS. And it said the problem with AIDS is that it is not confined to homosexuals. Oh I remember thinking, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for your, con your concern. But of course, it was of concern to all sorts of people. And then this, the amazing sort of medical breakthrough came at the uh, sort of end of the 80s with the development of, well, there's a drug called AZT, which is an antiretroviral. People began to understand the way this virus worked and began to target it with interventions that would make it harder for it to do its deadly work. And then I think the real breakthrough came in the 90s with combination therapies. And there was this, people realized that if you kind of hit it with a combined, there was a thing called HART, H-A-A-R-T, which was a combination therapy. And that began to reduce the effectiveness of the virus in undoing your defenses. Well, one of the key parts of the medical weaponry against HIV and AIDS comes from the very, very bottom of the ocean floor. And at the moment, there's a huge threat to that area of the planet from people exploiting it because there's trillions of dollars of valuable minerals down there, which are probably just going to be ripped out and harvested. And the people who are most against that sort of extraction are saying, well, there's things down there we don't even know what they are, but they could be life-saving in the future. Yeah. It's been an interesting battle to fight. There's the medics have fought their battle. It's an amazingly successful one. This year, February 2023, there was a guy called the Dusseldorf patient. Is there? Again, it's not right to name people because mm. you don't want to carry all that that comes with it. But after stem cell therapy was shown to have been cured of AIDS, the first person we think definitely to have been cured of AIDS. So it is no longer the death sentence. It used to be combination therapy also gave people much extended lives to the point where you could reduce the viral load, which is one of the measures of how seriously compromised your system is and your T-cell count and stuff, to manageable levels so people could live livable lives. Well, I'm talking about people who live in places like here, like London or New York or San Francisco or Sydney, wherever it might be. If you live in sub-Saharan Africa, it's a very difficult story, and the, the, who's getting infected there, it's much more common with heterosexual people than gay people. So it's a continuing story, and then a terrible story too for all those affected by it, but also a story of extraordinary resilience on the part of communities that manage to kind of come together and resist stigmatization and encourage engagement. And also medics who've done the most amazing things. And is there any work towards developing vaccines? Well, there's a thing called PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And there's a controversy about this at the moment. There is a drug which you can take and you can have unprotected risky sex on that and become sex which would normally lead to infection. You will not be infected if you take PrEP. But some people are saying that it's kind of irresponsible to spend money on developing that drug therapy because it'll make people kind of careless. But also there are lots of other causes for which we need medical spend other than that one. So the whole thing is continually dogged with controversy. The good news is, is that if you are a young gay man arriving in London now, unlike me arriving in London in 1980, mm -hmm. your chances of not dying of something like that are, are actually pretty good, mm -hmm. I think. It seems that invidious to have a favourite fact, but I do have a favourite fact, if I may say it. Yes, please. I have a very good friend called Michael, and in 1991 he was diagnosed HIV positive. And a couple of years later, he developed AIDS and was extremely ill. And I remember sitting in the Chelsea Westminster Hospital with his boyfriend, Steve, and we were trying to work out how long Michael would survive, what his chances of survival were. Michael got on to the Delta Project, which was one of those combination therapy projects. He was almost a sort of guinea pig on that, but received not the prophylaxis, but the real thing. 
And my favourite fact is that last year, 2022, Michael and Steve, who've been together ever since, came to spend the weekend with me in my house in East Sussex. And we had a jolly old time, which is a good favourite fact. That's lovely. That's brilliant. Yeah. I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah. Good way to end it. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. And Charles, we're going to go on to you next. Yes. And I... you are talking about card games. I know. This is great. I was so delighted to get this because it's taught me so much. I, I could name half a dozen well-known card games, one of which I play quite regularly, Bridge. But I love the names of some of the ones I came across, which I'm not really addressing so much, but More and Noddy and Laugh and Lie Down and Yuka. But essentially, what I was most struck by when looking into this subject is how modern the whole thing is. I assume card games have been going on forever. One of the most difficult things, if you're looking at the origins of these games, is where they started, because everyone claims them. The Chinese have this sort of, uh, a thing called a game of leaves, which we know was around about 1,100 years ago. And because leaves are what they are in our mind, people have assumed they must have been cards. Of course, the Chinese are great innovators in many ways, but the latest thinking is actually that they were probably some form of domino. And that cards as we know it, well, the ones I can come across where they're absolutely definite are from the Mameluke Empire of Egypt. The Mamelukes were essentially like the Turks controlling Egypt for 500 years. And you end up with this extraordinary thing, which I really enjoyed, was how different the signs were on these cards. So the Mameluke suits were goblets, very valuable to them, gold coins, swords, and polo sticks. So when in the 14th <laughs> century cards came to England, I mean, nobody even knew what polo was, so that was pointless. But around the world, when they dealt with the symbols, they made sense of them as to the world they lived in. So the Italian and Spanish cards today are still swords, cups, coins, and staves. And the Germans had acorns, leaves, hearts, and bells. And they still have that today. The French went with clover, pike heads, hearts, and paving tiles. And we, of course, have spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs. No, I thought everyone had the same spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs. I assumed that too, and I assumed it was 52, but it wasn't 52 cards in a lot of places. No. One of the other things in terms of the cards, which is uh, almost a universal as far as I can find, is the importance of the joker. So the joker, it doesn't matter which country you're from, he's always this naughty imp, sort of playful, going to lead you astray. And that actually is the sort of motif for card playing. It's always been seen as something that could really lead to trouble socially and, and of an evening. And it's something, if you think about it, it was a sailor's game when sailors were reputed to be very rough. It was prostitutes were playing, royalty were playing. It was a, a leveling game, but always with a chance to go into the naughty territory, as it were. I find the, the card games themselves, I mean, the ones I know, and which I think most of the listeners know, are actually quite recent. The oldest identifiable European card game is in 1426 in Bavaria, and it's called Carnuffel. <laughs> and uh, it was probably rhymed with Kerfuffle, and they replaced the N with, a, with an F. But it was a sort of game which essentially was one that was still played to an extent that there were sermons denouncing it. It was seen as going to be leading people astray. It was played by both sexes together, which was seen as obviously a potential for, for trouble and too much fraternizing with the opposite sex. And then also there was a sort of 
element of it with the, the different kings and ranks on the cards was seen as being socially undermining a potential for trouble. Oh. And one of the most famous men of the cloth, Latimer, who, oh. who ended up being one of the martyrs of Oxford, the three Oxford martyrs who was burnt at the stake by Queen Mary, in 1555, he gave a, a sermon, the first mention in English, against bridge. Uh, bridge, this game, which is, I suppose, is seen as an incredibly intellectual establishment game. Back then, Latimer gave a sermon against it because of its possibility of leading to social disorder. Where did you learn to play bridge? With my mother. My mother taught her four children how to play bridge. And I would say it wasn't a very intellectual version. It's what's known as kitchen bridge. You know, bridge has many layers and many varieties. There's contract bridge, which came about to reduce the possibility of chance playing a, a hand, as it were. You would be looking at a similar deck of cards and playing against people and seeing how well you played it in terms of a set hand, as it Why were. Why would you want to take chance? Was that seen as kind of morally as slightly superior? I think it was take... seeing who was going to win, who, who deserved to win. Uh, so there is a moral component. There that. is, in a way, I think. Also, with bridge, we don't know why a lot of these card games are called what they're called. There's a possibility that it came out of Turkey, Greece, that sort of area. And there's one claim is that it was British soldiers who were guarding a bridge in the Crimean War in the 1850s. They used to go across the bridge to a coffee house to play cards. Oh. And that's where that got its name. Being on tour in a band in the 1980s, one of the things that happened was card games. Nine-card yes. brag was the game that touring was used because it went on for a long time. So you could play the same game going for the duration of a tour. Mm -hmm. At the end of it, there'd be a sizable pot which would be invariably won by one of the road crew. <laughs> but they'd do two fingers at you and go, I'm going home now. But it was interesting that there was the game suited the enterprise, which was we were on tour, we were sitting on a bustle day, and it was exactly the right card game for that. A prile of nines, that's what you wanted. I have no idea what that even means now. Well, you find a lot of these card games were particularly popular with people on long voyages for exactly the same reason. Yeah. You know, it's something you can play endlessly and gamble on if you want to. But a pack of cards goes a very long way to breaking the boredom of a, of a journey or a tour in, in your case. Nothing boring about a communist tour, Charlie. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I do wonder, do you think there's going to be a decline in card games? Because boredom, that was... Awesome. And when I was little as well, we played loads of cards yes. with relatives. I mean, my children, it's very difficult to get them off their phones. Yeah. And you've got this bit of entertainment in your pocket all the time and kids too. And so do you think that they are declining among the younger generations? The younger generation. I love that you're saying that, Kat, since you're 20 years younger than us. Um, <laughs> but, but what's interesting to me is definitely, I'll tell you what is changing, is what people are prepared to put the effort into learning. Okay. A lot of these games are very complicated. Bridge is very difficult. To, to get to a playing standard so you're not disgracing yourself is tricky. We used to have it at Theological College. One of the things we did at Theological was learn to play bridge and croquet, funnily enough, because well, you really need that. And it's <laughs> <laughs> more tea vicar yeah. before you go through the hoops. But I, actually, another one is piquet. Piquet is a very complicated game. It's a never, French game. Oh, you never hear of it now. No, you? never. And it just takes a lot of effort. My grandparents played canasta, yes. whatever that yeah. is. They loved canasta. That was a big thing. Well, what's happened over the years and it goes back to Kat's point 
was that people had a lot of time in the past. There's generalization. Yeah. But learning Piquet was a part of being French. It was considered a very French patriotic game to play. We have records of Napoleon playing it on St. Helena. He also played Whist, which is a was the catch-all name for bridge before bridge became separately identified. And so you find over time that much more simple games such as gin rummy and poker come about. And gin rummy is a very easy game to play. It's when you meld suits and you meld colors or number runs and all of that. And you're jettisoning. That's a very important one. And poker, of course, is a very big one. Now, poker's not really a family game because of the, it's, it's quite a hard game, as in you're playing for money usually. Poker was invented, we think, in the early 1800s in Louisiana. Frenchmen had been playing a version of it. And when Louisiana was essentially sold by the French to the United States in the early 1800s, you very soon have after that these floating saloons, uh, gambling houses, these Mississippi steamboats. And they became places of, of sort of ill repute and lots of gambling with poker. But initially, the game of poker was played just with 20 cards, and you played with four players. You got five cards each. They only played with the ace, king, queen, jack, and 10. And the highest hand was either four aces and whatever, or equally good was four kings and an ace. And so you were just betting on the permutation of 20 cards around four people. And it was only after that that it eventually became more of that. There was an American who brought it to Britain, a man called Schenck. He was a general, a unionist general in the American Civil War. And he was sent over here in the 1870s as an ambassador to Britain. And he was staying in a royal house party where Queen Victoria was. And one of her duchesses said, this is a frightfully interesting game. And she took down the rules of poker from this American general. And he was very surprised because he thought he was just giving some tips. And then she sent him a book of all the rules. Uh, oh, which he had taught her, and he thought that was a bit not good. It's interesting with these card games because they, some of them got an extra wind through celebrity endorsement, really. And gin rummy became really popular in the 40s. It was taken up by people in Hollywood, and it was you saw it on screen. I mean, even sort of ridiculously in terms of historical accuracy, there was a 1940 film called The Seahawk with Errol Flynn playing the Earl of Essex. And he's playing gin rummy with Queen Elizabeth I several hundred years before it was possible. But he played it and enjoyed it, so he brought it into the, into the movie. <laughs> this sort of topic is so extraordinary to me because really the backs of cards have only been decorated in any way for a very short time, for, for 150 years or something. And that was before that, you just had a plain color on the back. But that was bad because they quickly got marked and that made it useless if you were playing a competitive game. And the dappling on the back or whatever just gave it an extra layer of protection. We have cards on Wednesday where I live now. Not every Wednesday, but we play Sweaty Betty. And it's an interesting one because Sweaty Betty is, of course, the Queen of Spades. They're just cards, aren't they, with pictures on. But you think of tarot or you think of the Ace of Spades. You think how they become loaded, the imagery becomes... And, I mean, Sweaty Betty is a rather unflattering thing to say about anybody. And it's associated with the Queen of Spades, who is notoriously the kind of evil woman mm. of the chercher la femme in your pack. Would be the but it is interesting as a regular... If you play cards, you have to do it regularly. Yeah. Uh, President Eisenhower used to set aside Saturday evenings to play bridge. And he got very, very good at it. And actually, Americans, if they, if they remember him at all now, we're talking quite a long time, 1950s, they think of him playing golf. He made golf very popular, but he also made bridge very popular in its day. 
And he used to go and watch national competitions. You can get better at bridge. It's oh, yeah, there's where... a different level. So I play a very low level of bridge. It's basically a social game and a chat and everything. But I've made the mistake of playing with people who are good at it, and they cannot believe that you can't remember all 40 cards that have gone before the one you play. <laughs> and I have no mathematics in my brain, so I, I, I literally can't do it. No, me neither. Did you have a favourite fact, Charles, from your research? Yes. So my favorite fact is to do with cribbage. Now, cribbage was really popular with sailors. It's a little bit of gambling and you can tot up your scores, etc. And it was very, very popular in the Second World War with submariners. And there was um, a very successful submarine called USS Wahoo, which was sent into the most dangerous part of the Yellow Sea. People were very frightened. It was shallow there, easy for submarines to be detected. But the Japanese really hadn't expected a a well-captained submarine to come into that part of their territory. And it clocked up the most incredible score. It, was, it became the most successful American submarine of its time. And the crew put it down to the fact that the captain and his first officer had played cribbage very early on in the tour. And the captain dealt the perfect hand to his number one, and they worked out the odds were about a quarter of a million to one that he would have got this hand. And the crew felt that blessed them. Oh. The captain got all of the officers to sign those five cards. And that game of cribbage is now still handed down in the US Navy to the senior submarine in service at any one time. So when an old submarine retires, that cribbage set gets given to the next ancient submarine in the fleet. Well, that's lovely. Brilliant. I love that. <laughs> And I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice. It's currently aboard the USS Chicago, which took over the board after a ceremony in 2019. There we go. I love cribbage. I remember you used to sit in the pubs, didn't you, cribbage boards, with little pegs that you used to stick in. You never yes. see that now. Cribbage was huge, wasn't it? I've never played it, never played but it was either. a really... I think, I mean, with bridge, you have to sit down at a table equidistant and, you know, 90 degrees to each other. You can't just flob and around. everyone's got to be equally sort of good, right? Yes. I've seen people get very irate when their partner plays the wrong card. And I don't want... So I've never, ever played for money. I've seen so many rows on bridge tables where somebody... Because you're costing your partner the same amount as you're losing. It's <laughs> yeah. quite annoying. I'm like that Highland Gatherings. When I try and do an eights and reel, because I love it, but I can't do it. And after all, you realise that everyone who can do it just finds you really annoying. You brought Scottish reels. I did. When, when you had your 60th at my house. And yeah. we had, I was terrified of that. Because you were. Yeah. But you danced. I did. But you had your very good chat who sort of coached us as we went along. So it, it felt half lesson and half joyful. It was so good. For, I love it. It was great. You you smiled from ear to ear all evening. You loved it. I love it. Well, thank you very much. I no, I loved it too. I've done Morris dancing. Oh, come on. Yeah. Now no. you've got to be very careful with the, I mean, not I haven't put the kit on, but you've got to be careful with the sticks. It's a knuckle crusher. Lots of tapping. You tap. Yes. Well, there was some some in uh, North Hans. I came across them. The something players, they take it very seriously. But they like the enthusiasm if you join in. It's a lot of hopping and skipping and turning around. <laughs> Sounds like your idea of hell. <laughs> it is quite testing. I wouldn't do it now. But it, Wasn't it Beecham that he'd try anything apart from incest and Morris dance? That's it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note, <laughs> should we move on? Is it me? Or got, should we know? So, Kat, what have you got? 
Well, I have another one of our listeners' suggestions, which was to research toothpaste. Oh. Something that we all probably know very little about the origins of, but use hopefully twice a day. I like you get the utilitarian ones, though, don't you, Kat? I, I know, I'm the sort of practical, yeah. real... The things but, we have every day and don't think about. Well, yeah. I quite like that, though, because yes, then too. next time you can actually have a think about it. But toothpaste is quite an interesting. It was actually a little bit challenging to research because there's a hell of a lot of information out there, which isn't really necessarily real. So you try and trace the real facts, especially the early origins of it, and everyone's claiming different things, and all the toothpaste manufacturers especially. Some of the more recent histories easier but obviously I have to go as far back as I can and that we do get toothpaste or something like toothpaste sort of these concoctions used for cleaning teeth going back a long way but we also know that lots of very early societies used other ways of cleaning their teeth not toothbrushes but twigs and chewing sticks are very very popular toothpicks as well so we know Romans have lots of toothpicks and things there's Viking examples one of the most wonderful graves the Oseberg ship we've got two women in it and the young of the two women her teeth are really quite marked she's probably used a metal pick to clean between her teeth because there are little little marks still only tiny ones cleaning your teeth has been a very very popular thing for a long time if we go back to all our cuneiform tablets again there are some that mention teeth cleaning again things that we think are toothpicks have been found we know that hippocrates wrote about cleaning teeth as well and so obviously this is a really important thing not just for actual oral health but also for appearance and you're going to get quite messy teeth quite quickly if you Mm. you don't do anything about it but actually it seems like we can definitely trace it back to ancient Egypt the first sort of toothpastey type solutions that's sort of several thousand years ago The Persians as well had their own versions using things like burnt shells and charcoal coming later again. So Mm. there's a sort of commonly uh, used cleaning material. Again, Greeks and Romans, we also know that they've got abrasives um, added to a powder mixture. Part of the problem with all of these is that they're extremely abrasive. Mm. And obviously tooth enamel doesn't really last very long (laughs) if you use something very, very abrasive for it. In China and India, again, a sort of powdery, pasty sort of thing. Some of them clearly added flavorings and the sort of making your breath smell nicer and it tastes better. So that's all really great. But it's really not until the industrial age or the 18th century when using powders actually first really become very popular. Again, they were very harsh on the teeth. And some of the sources online claim that things like crushed china and earthenware were used to add to some of these early powders. Ah, quite so oh, the squeaking. Yeah, yes, I imagine? know. Oh. Mm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. Just thinking of that. But one of the most popular uh, ingredients that are still used now today is bicarbonate of soda, um, was the sort of body for most of them. That's what I use? Yeah. I hate modern tooth, it's too sweet. It's um. so sweet for me. So I use bicarbonate of soda toothpaste, which makes me feel like my granddad, but actually it's Is much it more palatable. Hammer one or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one. Yeah. Much more palatable to me. And then later on, sodium borate or borax powder was added uh, at the end of the 18th century, which creates the foaming effect, which doesn't really do very much. It's more of a sort of sensory thing. And partially because we've been sort of trained to think that things that foam are really effective and useful. That reminds me of um, a former Duke of Marlborough went on honeymoon. It was the first time he had not had his servant to hand. And he rang down from his hotel suite to complain that his toothbrush wasn't foaming. (laughs) 
because he didn't know you had to put your own toothpaste on it. <laughs> I love that. Hmm. So on that, <laughs> but from um, from the 18th, 19th century onwards, that's when what we think of as toothpaste come develop, lots of different inventions. Somebody added essentially a type of soap to it in 1824 and 1873, Colgate and Co. Mm. produced the first mass-produced jars of toothpaste. And it was only actually in the 19th century that they started putting them into tubes. And that's quite an interesting story. Up to that point, there were some sort of creams and pastes. Most were powders that would come in jars. But Obviously, and you might not know this if you if you didn't have your butler to do it for you back then. Um, things you have to do was you meant to take the powder out, put it in your hand, take your toothbrush and rub it, add some water, yeah. and then rub it around to get it onto it, which isn't really a great way no. of doing it. It's a bit messy. Mm. People would just dip their toothbrush straight into the jar, which obviously made it really messy. Different families using the same jar, and it was double all, dipping. Yeah, <laughs> none of that was very, very healthy. One of the producers, somebody called uh, Washington Sheffield from Connecticut, he had already been making quite successfully a type of tooth cream, and his son called Lucius Sheffield travelled to Paris, and as you do in Paris, he observed all the painters using tubes for their paints, and he went home to his dad and said, "You know what? I've got an idea. <laughs> Why don't we put?" the toothpaste into tubes. Um, and then they did, and that became hugely and wildly successful. Yes. Brilliant thing. So well, it was the artist's supply. Yes, so it, it sort of came from that bit. Sort of there. So that's uh, really interesting. I was quite, and then, yeah, next breakthrough was in 1914 when the introduction of fluoride was discovered and how immensely helpful that is for reducing caries, especially in children. So... By that point, by sort of 20th century, that's the toothpaste that we really know. Controversy, though, Kat. Mm. I remember when they started fluorizing water supply, actually. Yes. Yes. And there was that interesting recurrence, that trope again and again about, oh, can we trust these people to adulterate the purity of our yes. food and water? Maybe it's some sinister plot to enslave us. You know, you hear it all the time, 5G, COVID vaccinations. Yeah. Yes. And so there was also initially not a very good understanding of how fluoride worked and what it did and how you know what amounts and all of that so there was some uncertainty around it but then yeah again people don't like feeling like it's being interfered with i have to say i've, I've worked a lot with teeth so i've spent a lot of time pulling out other people's teeth to study them I one didn't... really interesting thing is for why i actually quite like that a lot of a civilization didn't clean their teeth is you know when you get plaque and things yes. in your teeth yeah. or calculus this is that essentially becomes extremely hard and stays on your teeth potentially for thousands of years but that actually traps a lot of remains of what you've been eating oh, and that remains in there handy. as well. Yeah. So we now have developed these methods really, really well. We can take little bits of that calculus mm -hmm. and we can get all sorts of micro um, evidence of plants and we can get DNA out of it as well. So you can get evidence of disease. Oh. Um, and there's some really nice, even going back to, I think, Neanderthals, people have been able to find evidence of certain plants that are not nutritional plants but medicinal plants and things like chamomile so you can see that they are actually consuming a lot of different plants that are clearly medicinal same ones that we use today which we would never know because they wouldn't leave a trace anywhere else they don't preserved 
in calculus. So Plark is your friend. It is my friend. <laughs> yes. So all the lectures we have from dentists about yeah. Plark. Yes. And there's Cat going, leave your Plark alone. Exactly. Someone's going to come along in a thousand years' time. What and causes Plark? Is it a build up of acid on the tooth enamel or something? It's the remains, isn't it? They don't get broken down and then they stay on there. Actually, and they stick on it. And... I actually don't know. You're a doctor, not a dentist. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a doctor of dead people. But, so. <laughs> but that's interesting because you gave me nightmares, with George, literally, with George Washington's I'm dentures. So sorry. Now, obviously, you've just got a hosts of viking teeth covered in plaque sprouting chamomile is going to come for me in my, yes in my I'm, dream. I'm glad i can inspire your vivid <laughs> you to put it into imagination book or something. But how interesting that they were taking stuff for therapeutic reasons of course yes. they were because they got yes. two they they headaches like we did yes right? they we worked just, it out we just don't know that people did this in the past so that's one of those interesting ways that we can find out about that mm. actually but i did also fall down a little bit of a toothbrush rabbit hole obviously so my favorite cavity yeah, <laughs> very good thank you um the origins of what we recognize as the modern toothbrush it was invented by an englishman called william addis in 1780 when he was in prison so he was imprisoned for inciting a riot <laughs> <laughs> and he was bored and he was uh, looking at everyone else cleaning their teeth with rags uh, using salt or uh, charcoal to clean their teeth and thought that's not really that good. People had been using toothbrushes before in different forms, but he invented one. He got a piece of bone. I think he collected it from his food or something like that and got some animal hair bristles and stuck them together and essentially invented what became the modern toothbrush. They're very highly prized in prisons now, Kat, because they're easily adapted into a bladed weapon. Yes. He didn't know that, did he? Right. No, he didn't know that. Maybe stuck to the I, rags and... Well, I don't know how you build health and safety in that respect into your toothbrush. No, that would be <laughs> tricky. Wisdom teeth, that's another thing I have nightmares about. Have you had one out? I've had them all out. I was 14, I woke up after a general anaesthetic to find bruises all over my ribs. Is that true? Yeah, the oh, dentist okay. had used his knee to get some leverage. Oh, it's such an awful... Imagine watching that. I got off school for a week, so that was good. I stayed at home. Well, I think that brings us to the end and to the exciting, nerve-wracking mm, final tingle. decision from the disembodied Completely voice. arbitrary kind of nonsense. At the end. No, I'm not being you. Says the man who's won three out of the last four. Well, not, when arbitrary, I mean, a stop clock is right twice a day, right? <laughs> <laughs> Gratitude. It's not you. I didn't think it would be. Although it was beautifully delivered. Well, thank you very much. But it's Charles. Oh, hey. <gasps> well done. Back in. There well, we I tell you something that is interesting with a disembodied voice. It's the ones I really, I don't know if you find this, the ones you really enjoy doing. I think it comes across, doesn't mm. it? And I found the card game... You know, the different symbols for cards. I just assumed it was universal and things like that. But I, I wanted to ask you, if you go to a casino in, I don't know, Bucharest or something, mm. do they deal cards with what we would recognise as suits? Or do they deal cards with their own suits? I actually don't know that. I mean, I've only been in casinos in the US and South Africa and England, and they've all had what we'd recognise. Did you have a martini? Was it shaken or stirred, Charles? No, I, I didn't really go the whole hog. <laughs> Did you go in a black tie? No, I didn't. Oh. Do you know, I was put off gambling, heading for boarding school, aged about 10, and I had a little brown envelope with my £3 pocket money for the term, yeah. and I lost it all on the fruit machine at Northampton Railway Station, <laughs> and I felt sick. 
<laughs> well, first of all, that was the end of sweets for the term, which was annoying. But that loss was taught me a lot. What a useful lesson, isn't it? Mm. Well, and Richard, you mentioned card games in Bucharest. The standard 52 card pack in general use does use clubs, diamonds, hearts, and spades. But the 32 card packs are also generally available, and they use acorns, leaves, hearts, and bells. Thank you. So, before we go, we have to just divvy out our next topics that we're going to research. Okay. So I think we've now decided that, Richard, you're going to be looking into Westminster Abbey. Great. And Charles, dueling oh. is yours. Yes, a little bit of death. Yeah, well, we haven't had that for a while <laughs> no. for you. It's been a bit too peaceful. So, <laughs> And I am going to go down my coffee addiction rabbit hole. Oh, yes. Into history of coffee. Excellent. So that's it for this week. And thank you to everyone for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps people find us when they're searching for something to listen on their podcast apps. And as you've heard, we've been using some of your suggestions for topics. And if you have something else you think would make a good rabbit hole for us to go down, please do send us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. And each Wednesday, one of us will be in our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph discussing a favourite fact or two. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice... Never let anyone drive you crazy. It's nearby anyway, and the walk is good for you. Oh, very good. Very good. So goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.